It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I am here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by a woman who is running for the District Attorney of Manhattan's office. It is Tahani Abushi. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning, Zerlina. How are you doing? You know, I'm I'm blessed. I'm happy to be here. You know, every day I wake up, I'm happy to still be here um, and still have my family. So I, I'm all right. How are you? How How is your Monday? How is Monday morning when you're a candidate? What is that like? You know, it's inspiring. We spent the weekend canvassing so many places across Manhattan, um, talking to a lot of voters. We're down to about 29 days from the race. Um, so every minute counts for me. I'm up early. I'm out and about making sure that we're covering all our bases um, and giving voters as much information as possible to make the best decision and get on board with our campaign. It, it seems to be working. I feel like my inbox is full of my favorite New York City activists all telling me that they support you and your candidacy. So something <laughs> is very clearly working. Can can you talk a little bit about one, the, the, the role of the Manhattan DA in general, because I think this is one of those elected positions that we are just starting to come to understand all of the responsibilities that it carries and what it could mean for criminal justice. Um, so talk a little bit about the position and then the personal story that led you to want to hold it and what kind of difference that might make. Yeah. And I think one of the, one of the things we're trying to do with our campaign um, is expand people's understanding of what they think the district attorney does. And so basically, you know, this person, she decides who to charge, what to charge, what penalty, if any, to recommend. And most of the time, the narrative out there is we come in after the fact the district attorney outdoes the harm that was done, and then they just keep it moving. Um, there's not much thinking through the decision. There's not much focus on preventative measures. What were the instabilities we missed before it became criminal conduct? And then what are our real measurements of rehabilitation? And then what is the plan for successful integration back into society? And so that is the job of the district attorney. That is the responsibility that has kind of been swept under the rug. That's what I want to do. Um, that's my job as a civil rights attorney now, is to dissect those decisions, to understand that they go far beyond the four corners of that office. They come into our communities, and they play out in our families, in our neighborhoods for generations to come. And so we need to elect somebody that's going to see this issue from a comprehensive perspective, that's going to bring in allies to tackle it from all sides. Um, I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about understanding the conditions that led to the criminal behavior and that being a part of this role. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, people aren't born criminals. Um, They're a product of their environment. There are circumstances. And for me, my personal story is is a perfect example of that. Um, I have nine siblings. I'm the child of Palestinian immigrants, born and raised in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, and we had, you know, a pretty good childhood growing up, you know, played outside till the lights went on um, the whole nine yards. And when I was 14, my father was sentenced to 22 years in prison. And essentially, my mom was left to 
deal with the 10 kids and keep our head above water. Um, and we were trying to keep our family together. And I always say that, you know, at 14, all of the negative influences a parent fears their child will fall into was just readily at my fingertips. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to look for it. I didn't have to fight for it. It was there if I wanted to engage in it. But our after-school programs, internships, counseling, um, those are the things that I had to really fight uh, and seek and stay in so that I cannot become that statistic that throws me to the streets, but I can hold on to my education, I can find things that I'm good at, and I can be that person I want to be when I grow up. Um, And that's what we're really missing here is, you know, do people have enough support? Because for me, I define public safety as public stability. You know, right now, at least here in New York City, we've got about seven prosecutor offices. We have the largest law enforcement agency in the country. Um, We have jails and prisons. We have harsh sentencing laws, and we do all of that. But they're telling us crime is still rising. My question is, because you're missing what happens before the crime happens, and we don't have a plan after it happens. And that's, that's two major blind spots that we're missing. Yeah, and it feels like we we might be missing those things because of the lived experience of the people who hold those jobs that are supposed to be handling those things. (laughs) What was that? That's actually my that's actually my question. Just to add on to what you said, Jess, you know, the lived experiences of the people who are running to be in these positions that that matters. I mean, I think just to add on to Jess's point, why does that matter so much? I mean, I just think that we we just talked to Maya Wiley, and I feel like. You know, her. she was talking a lot about, you know, being a mother and how that um, she's going to bring some of that to um, the role of mayor as we sort of get out of this pandemic and back into some sort of normalcy, but also knowing that normal wasn't terrific um, for a lot of folks. Right. I mean, why why did, does, does the lived experience piece make for make or make or facilitate Um, the type of progressive changes that you think we need? You know, there was a moment in the courtroom, and this went down in Brooklyn, where the judge had interrupted the proceedings and he asked the prosecutor, what what are you going to do with all these kids, pointing to my nine siblings and I? And she said, they're not my problem, and she kept it moving. Um, And so the judge acknowledged that there was a bigger risk, right, that comes with trying to take down parents and tear down a family, There was that awkward silence in the courtroom that people knew our futures were all jeopardized, um, and there was no acknowledgement on the part of the prosecutor. And so when you talk about accountability, um, which can go beyond incarceration and prosecution, you have to balance the destabilization of these families and communities. What comes then? Um, And so we need somebody that's going to see us as human beings. We need somebody that has walked in our shoes that understands that we are families. We can show justice. We can so, show mercy. Um, we can focus on rehabilitation. We have to understand that while we're trying to hold one person accountable, that their family and community will be impacted by it as well. And these are the risk factors that also need to be taken into consideration in every decision that a prosecutor makes. And it's just not done now. You know, we've had four DAs in the last 80 years. Every single Manhattan district attorney has been a white male. And so we're not just talking about electing the first female or the first person of color. We're talking about electing somebody that represents the demographics of majority of the people arrested and prosecuted in our city. 
We've never had that voice. And that's the voice and experience that has been missing from his office since its inception. You would also be the first Muslim district attorney anywhere in the country. Um, I, right. I think I think when I first heard your name, it was probably in, in 2017 when you were one of the leaders of that amazing legal team of mostly women of color who showed up at JFK after the Muslim ban um, and, and went to work helping those people who were caught. Can, can you talk about yep. What what took you from there to running for this particular? Like, when did you decide? Like, no, I I I want to be the DA. Like, that's that's the role where I can make the most change. Like, how did you get from from sitting in the airport you know, my, with the laptop to that yeah, moment? My mind, my mind always goes to the root issue, right? I don't do patch jobs. I don't cut corners. I don't appease the louder voices. I want to know why things are happening, and how do we fix them? How do we do them better? And so as a civil rights attorney, I identify these abusive policies and practices and I change them. We've done it with the NYPD, with the fire department. I do it when I'm representing victims of sexual assaults or children in suspension hearing. And I'm not somebody that needs an invitation to get involved. I see the injustice. It's like it's got my name stamped all over it. I'm going to go try and do something about it. And, you know, when Trump ran on such a... a, um, divisive and racist platform and he was coming for the Muslims and he was coming for people of color so hard our community was bracing for it again and when he issued that executive order it was no-brainer went right to JFK cola that legal team and I said Trump or not this is racist this is wrong immigrants are welcome in our community Muslims are welcome we're not going to sit here and tear each other down because it serves someone else's political gain um, but still, as my job as a civil rights attorney is still just really damage control. After the harm happens, I try to make people whole. I try to fix these policies. I try to change these minds. Um, but this office has been an obstacle to that progress for a long time. Uh, and instead of seeing it as someone that's not part of the conversation, an office that's not going to cooperate, an office that we're just going to have to keep going up against, what if we turned it into an ally? What if we turned it into a bully pulpit that advocated with organizers and activists and civil rights lawyers and public defenders that have been pushing for these reforms year after year, which eventually become law, but not until we've wasted all this time and resource fighting about it to convince the district attorney's office to get on board. And so that's where my mind went. And I was sitting in my office, you know, working on cases where an officer had shot one of my clients in the face. Uh, another child was sexually assaulted in school. Another family had a no-knock warrant go off at 4 a.m. in their home. Everybody was uh, arrested. Dogs went in, tore their, their apartment up. Um, the children were woken up. It's just like trauma after trauma after trauma. And I thought to myself, how long am I going to do this when I know that here's this office that is participating in a lot of this harm and we can stop it? We can open it up to the public. We can make it transparent and accountable and collaborative with the public. We just have to get somebody in there that cares about those things, that is going to prioritize the other voices in Manhattan that have long been forgotten by this office and by the race in general. It feels to me like we, a year after um, the supposed, I guess, quote-unquote racial reckoning, that's what um last summer um is sort of labeled as and in a year's time we're coming up on the one year anniversary tomorrow of the murder of george floyd 
Um, and a lot has changed and a lot has not. And one of the things that has changed is even the idea that we we here at Signal Boost think that it's super important to bring on candidates who are running for Manhattan District Attorney because of what we've sort of been talking about so far um, in terms of the role of the district attorney in Manhattan and how putting a different um, person with different lived experiences in that position leads to different outcomes. Um, One of the things that hasn't changed um, over the course of this year is I don't feel like the, the fundamental dynamic that was present, which is the police and the police unions just having in a, you know, more power than they should um, in, in, right. um, in order to influence uh, policies. And I feel like you've already sort of hit on this idea that the, the district attorney is that person that is making the decisions about who and what to prosecute. Um, and I feel like that's the, the focus on the job um, that we have here on this show is actually we're the rare <laughs> show that realizes this connection. How do we make it clearer um, for more folks, like for, for more voters um, who are coming to the polls to vote um, that the district attorney, you know, really affects your day to day? Can you just sort of lay that out? How does the Manhattan district, district attorney affect the day to day lived experiences of people who live um, in, you know, the greatest city in the world? Yeah, I think that's a very important question. This is why I, I always push and say, like, you have to understand that the decision you're making is permanent and it's going to dictate the opportunities and obstacles that will come not only the way of the person that stands accused, but their entire family for generations to come. Mm. Right. You're talking about when someone comes into contact with our system, we have two options. If it's the first time they come into contact with our system, we can correct course. We can find out, okay, well, what did we miss? Why did you make these decisions? What programs do we have uh, available for rehabilitation? We also have to assess, um, is this a case that shouldn't be charged? Are there false premises here? Is there bad policing going on? Because we need to hold the police accountable too. And then for those that we go forward and prosecute, um, why are we prosecuting? What is the goal? What are our measurements of rehabilitation? And then what's the plan um, if this person has jail or prison time, what's the plan when they get out? Um, and that's the 360 view. And people who have these criminal records, whether they've served jail time or prison time or not, um, you're talking about legalized discrimination, um, their inability to secure housing, employment, um, access to funds for education, social services, because they now have this record, right? So when you look at graduation rates, employment rates, homeownership, Um, when you look at people's families and their abilities to break out of the cycle, you don't need to look further than what this office has done when it's gone into communities and when it has prosecuted and incarcerated. And I think the legalized marijuana movement is a perfect example. You know, the state is about to start selling weed, just like many families did, to raise revenue. And one of the deals on the table early on was, you know what, we'll just expunge everyone's records. Okay, well, this, these charges and convictions have been on people's records 20, 30, 40 years. What is removing it now going to do after their life has taken course all surrounding this one incident and moment? And that's really what happens. Your life becomes revolving around 
what happens with this case, how it's resolved. Do you move forward or do you find these odd and end jobs? Are you pushed into the shadows of society trying to keep your head above water? Because every time you want to do anything, you have to talk about that one time that one thing happened. Um, so that's why it's such a critical, important decision um, and one that has been thought through and, and why and how actually it impacts every single aspect of your life. How should we make restitution to people who have been incarcerated for something that we now understand is as legal or now treat as legal or, or after, you know, after the fact of terrible policing and people are in jail who should not be in jail, like once years have passed and, and kids have grown up without parents, how how do you start to make restitution? That might be a question that is too large for this morning, but how, how do you start thinking no, about I that? Think, I think this is exactly the questions we have to tackle. Like, let's be serious about what it means to rebuild families that these systems destroyed, that the failed war on drugs destroyed, that these things that have targeted black communities and Latino communities, we have to talk about how do we rebuild them and you rebuild them by investing resources in them. You know, one of the things that advocates were able to secure in the, the legalized marijuana bill was a 40% earmark of revenue to go back into these communities of color. And that means making sure that our kids have after-school programs, bring art and music back, extracurricular activities, make sure that there's job training, mental health counseling, um, uh, social services for the family so that we can make sure they can make ends meet, they can pay their rent, they can put food on the table. You know, everybody wants to be safe. Everybody deserves to be safe. And we can no longer condition the safety of one community upon the criminalization of another. And to do that, we have to ensure that we are responding to all communities equally with resources, with investments, and ensuring that we're not criminalizing that struggle anymore of trying to make ends meet, but we're investing, we're lending a hand. And then the outcome is you get people who are upstanding citizens that are functioning adults, that are productive, that are able to pursue what they had in mind for themselves when they first even started school which is just important. And these are the investments that come to fruition decades later when our kids are finishing high school and graduating college and are finding jobs that are beneficial to them uh, and beneficial to the entire community. How are you thinking about uh, this, uh, these kinds of questions as they really... I mean, so New York has been seeing some truly horrific things in the last year. It's It's not just... Um, it's not just, you know, crime being up because, you know, the pandemic and, and the economic devastation that followed, et cetera. It's it's hate crimes. Like we had two hate related incidents in Jewish communities in Brooklyn over the weekend. We have seen countless videos, appalling videos of of hate crimes against Asian Americans in our city. Um, it's devastating and it like hurts my heart in in a real way. Um how I love this concept of, of restitution and restorative justice, and how, but how does that apply to to crimes like this? You know, how how do you approach it when somebody just fully doesn't understand the humanity of of their own neighbors? Like how how do you how do you right. bring a holistic right. sense to that? <laughs> I think this is this is a perfect example of when we rely too much on prosecution and incarceration. I always tell people, you know, this is a sensitive subject. It's heartbreaking. For me, as a Palestinian Muslim woman, I wear hijab and I'm six feet tall, so I couldn't hide if I wanted to, right? <laughs> Plus, I throw on those heels. So it's like, you know, 
and I've been a victim of hate and hate crimes before. It's part of my experience growing up in New York City, especially after 9-11. Um, But when you have someone like Trump and other elected officials that have demonized your faith, that have spread rumors and stereotypes, um, there's the trickle-down effect. Um, When you have biased media that tells your story and paints the entire community with a broad brush, um, these are the trickle-down effects. And we know that we're never going to police and prosecute and incarcerate our way out of hate. And we're not going to accomplish education through those means either. No, the difference between a hate crime and not a hate crime is an enhancement. So people are still going to be held accountable for the physical assault, for the injury that occurred. But what the hate crime statute does is it finds a way to say this was done because there was sentiment against your race, your religion, your gender. And so because it was motivated by any of those things, we're going to add a couple more years of jail and prison to it. And the question is why? An assault is is violent, and we stand against violence. Hate is a form of violence, and we stand against that too. But that enhancement, you're going to put somebody in jail longer. Are we sure that they're going to come out with their minds changed? What is the focus of rehabilitation? How do we know that this person is going to be safe when they're on the streets and that their family and other people of their faith or ethnicity is going to be safe too? And so what a lot of groups have started to promote is the education aspect. Let's push dialogue, education, empathy. Let's get groups together. Let's start talking about things that everyone is reading, seeing, and hearing and have that primary source where you can talk about these things. And a lot of people will say, look, you're crazy. I don't want to be the subject of a hate crime and then, you know, talk about restorative justice and education. I just want people's minds to be changed and I want it to stop happening. My question is, How are we going to change people's minds if we're not educating them, if we're not talking to them? We have the prosecution and incarceration tools. They've always been there, but it's still happening. And so let's offer people other tools. Let's offer that restorative justice. Let's lean into the community-based organizations that do this work. Let's fund them. Let's ensure that they can continue to push their message and have these difficult conversations while also supporting the victims and understanding that victims are going to feel unsafe and unstable after this? And how do we make sure that we continue to engage them and let them know that we're working to change people's minds and ensure a broader protection beyond just putting one person in prison or jail for an extended period of time while the threat will still remain in the streets? You don't hear a lot of uh, soon-to-be prosecutors talking about restorative justice (laughs) as as something that's important um, to consider Normally, prosecutors, the, the culture is conviction by any means necessary. I mean, like they it's all about sort of your conviction rate and how many cases you win and that losing is just not acceptable. I mean, how does that dynamic? You've already sort of spoken to the fact that like prosecutors are making a decision that affects an entire family. And if they're not considering you know, how that piece of their job, um, you know, requires a moment to say, hmm, is this prosecution going to mean that this family and these children don't have parents or a parent? Um, Can you speak to why it's so critically important to have someone in the role of Manhattan District Attorney who even asked the question, you know, what are the long long term and 
um, extended consequences of this prosecution, as opposed to the thing that most prosecutors are trained to to think about, which is their their rate of prosecution, like just like their win rate. That's it. That they don't think about anything else. Right. And one of the the policies I'm proposing is to scrap what we currently have, which is called the Early Case Assessment Bureau, where the decision is made, how are we going to make these charges stick, these allegations from the police? How are we going to turn them into charges? Can we, is this case going to be successful? Can we secure a a conviction to instead have an arrest review unit to say, what is this arrest paperwork saying? Is this something to go forward? What is the cry for help here that we missed? What are all the tools we can throw at this from a comprehensive perspective and address the root causes, address rehabilitation, and prevent harm? Um, and so the reason why it's important is because, you know, it's very hard to predict human behavior, right? But we can predict that when certain instabilities exist, it's more likely that crime will occur. And we know that our youth through the age of, I think, 25, even you can extend it to 30, um, is the time in people's lives where they're most prone to engaging in criminal conduct. And then after that, the age curve has it declining. So by the time a person is 45, 55, the likelihood that they'll engage in criminal conduct drastically decreases. And that's one of the reasons why we talk about mass incarceration being problematic because we put people in jail and prisons for so long that they're aging out. They're coming out in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, And so when you talk about what has changed, how did we change it? How do we prevent other people who are in our society from being harmed? Um, These decisions don't reach that far. But that should be an integral part of the district attorney's office is those preventative measures. So we have to think it through. You know, you put a person, you convict somebody. They don't go to jail or prison, but they take a plea. And they have this criminal conviction on their record. Um, We know they're going to have a problem getting a job. We know they're going to have a problem securing financial aid for school. We know they're not going to qualify for housing vouchers. We know all these things are going to happen. So now we've just increased our housing issue unemployment issue, maybe this person develops mental health issues, maybe they they fall into substance use disorder. And so, okay, it's not our problem. We pass them through our system. Now, here, city agencies, you go deal with these issues on your end. And if this person comes back into our system, we'll keep prosecuting them and just send them right back out to you and the community to shoulder and figure out how you're going to get them on their feet. I have literally, I've never heard anybody talk about the holistic nature of this office in the way that you have this morning. Um, Tahani Abushi, I, I want to thank you for joining us. And did you say 29 days? <laughs> yeah, just about early voting starts June 12th and election day is June 22nd. And where can people find you online if they want to learn more? You can check us out on my website, Tahani4DA or any of our social media accounts, Tahani NYC. Thank you so much for being here this morning and best of luck in the home stretch. Absolutely. Thank you both so much. It was an absolute pleasure. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening.